If you'll turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. It's a little book near the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I'm going to open the sermon like this. There was a monk who once joined a monastery and he had to take a vow of silence. After the first 10 years, his superior called him in and said, do you have anything to say? The monk said simply, food bad. Another 10 years went by and the monk had an opportunity to speak again. The superior asked him for his thoughts. He said, bed hard. 10 more years, 30 years later, he was again called in by his superior. When asked if he said, had anything to say, he said, I quit. His supervisor said, it doesn't surprise me a bit. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. <laughs> now, I say that because I want you to see the word complaint. Complaint. As we've looked in the book of Habakkuk, we've seen this background information take place. Habakkuk is a person just like us. He's a prophet. And he's going before the Lord as the beginning of the book. And he says, God, the children of Israel, we've sinned against you. Would you please make us holy? Would you please cleanse us up? And God says, you know, I'm going to do just that. Uh, I'm going to send the Babylonians, a ruthless and impetuous people, to discipline you. So Habakkuk was complaining about the children of Israel's sin. God says, I'm going to fix it through the nation of Babylon. And Habakkuk says, now that doesn't make any sense at all. So he gives a second complaint to the Lord. He says, the Babylonians? Why in the world would you discipline? I know we're not perfect, but we're more righteous than them. Why would you discipline us with a terrible, wicked people? And God says to the prophet, the same thing he says to you and I, the just, my people, the righteous, shall live by faith. In other words, you've got to trust what I'm doing when you don't understand what I'm doing. That's the characteristic that every Christian should have when we go through life. When we don't understand what's going on, it doesn't mean God doesn't understand what's going on. We've got to trust that God knows what he's doing. And it may get worse than we think it should, but he still knows what he's doing. So what is your complaint this morning? Do you think God's not been fair? Do you think God doesn't care? Do you think God loves somebody else more than he loves you? As we look at the a book of Habakkuk, we gain insights into the mind of God. And understand what he would say to us, just like he said to the prophet. Now, in order for us to answer this question, how does God answer Habakkuk's complaint? If you're following along, there's an outline. I need to do a little background here because we're going to look through the whole chapter of Habakkuk chapter 2. Here's point number one if you want to write this down. God releases his song. Habakkuk chapter 2 is unique in the genre, they call it, or the literature of scripture. It's a song. Composed by the Lord himself. As you read through the chapter, there are five verses, three stanzas each, and they all start with the word woe. W-O-E. Scholars have called it a taunt song or a song of woe. Now remember, Habakkuk is getting a word from the Lord about something that's going to happen in the future. If you had to put a title to this song, you could say it like this. You'll reap what you sow. It's the children of Israel who are saying this to the Babylonians. But it's the same thing that can be said of us. One of the fundamental principles of life is we'll reap what we sow. And as you go through this song, we see very clearly the Lord is giving a fuller explanation to his word. Last week we looked at the just shall live by faith. So God's saying, 
Habakkuk, this is why I want you to live by faith. So bear with me now. We're going to break this down as simply, as quickly as I can, but it's very crucial for the rest of the message. There are five types of sinners or sin in this text that God uses in the psalm. So we just want to look at these sins because God hates sin. God doesn't want us acting like this. This is the way the Babylonians are acting, and God is calling them out through this psalm. The first thing there we see here is that the Babylonians were guilty of the sin of extortion. They were using intimidation for greed or personal gain. Let's read verses 6 through 8 together. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion? How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you'll become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. What he's referring to here is the nation of Babylon was going on the the warpath. And they were destroying peoples and nations. And they were taking for themselves possessions. They were plundering other people. The song continues and the Lord's saying, you're going to reap what you sow. You're using extortion to plunder these people. Well, guess what? In the future, it's going to come back on you. For personal application, the way we use people now will be judged by God in the future. We shall reap what we sow. Be careful how you treat folks. Do you use them for personal gain? Do you use them for your benefit? They're valuable to God. They should be valuable to us. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourselves. The second woe we find in verses 9 through 11. They were guilty of making up their own laws. And if we don't see this in our country today, woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain. To set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. They didn't want to follow the God, God's laws. They wanted to follow their own. And we see that in our lives too. And, and one of the principles that we're going to see in the day of judgment is that We're guilty of making up our own laws and we'll be judged by those we judge. Or we'll be judged by God's law even though we ignore it now. One of the things that that Christians are really, really guilty of doing is when we want something, we'll uh, we'll make up our own rules. We'll make concessions. We'll fabricate things for our own benefit. And that's what the Babylonians were doing. We've got to be very careful when we decide that we're going to make up our own rules and say God's going to approve of them. The third woe is they were guilty of the sin of violence. Look what it says in verses 12 through 13. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? So let's put these together. The sin of the Babylonians is they're using people for their own selfish gain. They're making up their own laws as they go along the way and even using violence for selfish purposes. And God says, fine, the way you treat others, you shall be treated too. You've destroyed others, it will come back on you. The fourth woe, letter D, they cause shame to come on others, we see in verse 15. And this is a very graphic picture. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. One of the things that people do when they make up their own laws is they make up their own morals. They give themselves a pass. A person that does this is a very self-centered person. The Babylonians were a very self-centered nation. 
And they are steamrolling people for personal gain. They're saying, there is no God. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to get what I can get. And I want to make up my own rules, even my own morals. And God in his infinite patience is letting him do it. We would think, why? Because he's not finished yet. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God deals with the Babylonians more strictly later. Last woe is they caused shame to come upon themselves. Verse 15, I'm sorry, I just said that they caused shame to come upon themselves. One of the things we've got to remember is that it's, it's a shame to mention what the disobedient do in secret. We don't talk about shameful things because shameful things are disobedient to God's holy law. And we've got to be very careful when we're doing things that bring shame to ourselves and to our families. The last thing they did is, uh, verse 18, they chose an idol. They, they replaced God with something else. And that's what wicked folks do. They don't want God to be the Lord of their lives. They don't want the Bible to be in their lives. So they come up with their own God. Verse 18 says, Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. An idol, by definition, is a God replacement. Since we don't want God to be our God, we'll create our own. The God we create always lets us do what we want. He's kind. He's benevolent. He never says anything about our sin. But he's going to give us blessings when we need them. He's at our beck and command. So as you go through these five characteristics of the Babylonian people, you see kind of a, a pattern developing. They're wicked, but they think they're not. They think God's for them, but he's not. They are the epitome of being deceived. They represent the kingdom of darkness. They represent Satan's wishes. They're doing what they please in this world. So you have two choices here. You can live for God or you can live for yourself. And they are choosing to live for themselves. And they're, they're conquering those that are supposed to be living for God. All around us, we see people in the same circumstance. There are people living for God or there are people living for themselves. And God is saying through this song, one day you will reap what you sow. We think, oh, I, I got away with it. I can do this and I've done these things in the past. I, nothing's ever happened to me. You'll reap what you sow. Sometimes God judges immediately, but the Bible says that there'll come a time of judgment where God will judge all of us perfectly. I heard a preacher say it one time like this. If you did one less good deed on earth when you could have done a good deed, you'll receive lesser reward in heaven. If you chose to sin one time more on earth than you didn't, you'll receive one degree worse in hell. One of the things that God does perfectly is he judges our sin perfectly. The Babylonians haven't learned that lesson yet. So God is saying, here's the song that I'm going to sing. You better pay attention you better, because you're going to reap what you sow. There are nations that still haven't learned that lesson today. There are people that still haven't learned that lesson today. Do you believe that you'll reap what you sow? If you do, it's going to affect the way you live. It's going to affect your decision making. Uh, there's a publication called Open Doors. They talk about the nation of North Korea, the most godless nation on earth. If you're a Christian in those places, uh, you'll face incredible persecution, in incredible suffering just for calling yourself a Christian. There are nations that haven't learned the lesson yet that God is God. You may not like it. You may not acknowledge it. The Babylonians didn't acknowledge it, and many don't acknowledge it today. But there is one God who created the heavens and the earth. He sustains all things by his powerful word. He is good, he is holy, and he exists. 
And the Babylonians are being told, because you've ignored him, there is going to come a time when you're going to reap what you sow. Now, a couple of things I want you to see here by way of application before we go any farther. God gives incredible detail to Habakkuk. He's saying, here's what they've done. Here's what they've done. Here's what they've done. I have seen it all. What are you complaining about, Habakkuk? You don't think I see? I'm God. I know. I know the number of hairs on people's heads. I know when a sparrow falls to the ground. I know what's happening in the nations. It's a mind-boggling thought that our God is that big. So he's saying to them and to us and to Habakkuk, I know what's going on. Do you know that God knows what's going on in our country right now? Do you know that God knows what's going on in your life right now? It's a staggering thought. We tend to think, because God's not doing anything for me, I don't want anything to do with him. I've prayed he hasn't answered my prayers. Why is he allowing this situation to happen? Why is he allowing this situation to happen? As if God is overloaded, he's overwhelmed with what's going on in the world. He sees every detail of what's taking place here. Historians tell us that these prophecies that took place through this song will be fulfilled some 60 plus years later. God is giving them time to see who he is because he's gracious. But he doesn't ignore it. In the same way, God doesn't ignore our sin. God wants us to deal with our sin the way he views our sin. He hates it. We make compromises with it and God says, how long is this going to go on? I'm giving you time to repent so that you can get forgiven for this and get your life turned around. Don't think that I'm going to put up with your sin. I'll forgive it. That's why I sent my son to forgive you for your sin. But I'm not going to compromise with it like you are. Well, it's kind of a lesson of fear in there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I saw a story from uh, David Jeremiah's devotional turning point. There was a young man who went to court. And uh, because he had watched some TV shows, he thought he could run out of the courtroom. He was going to escape the judge. So he took off out the courtroom and he had a plan. He was going to break through one of these windows and escape out and get away. As he took off, he went out and ran into the window, but it was bulletproof glass and it wouldn't break. He ran right into the window, fell down. They arrested him. Guess what? He had to go back in front of the judge. Listen, you might think you can escape the judgment of God, but the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, just as man is destined to die once, then he will face the judgment. God is saying to Habakkuk, I know there's steamroll in the whole world right now, and I'm using them to discipline you, but there will come a day when they will be judged. Historians tell us the nation died in 539 BC. It came to pass. The principle for us is this. We'll reap what we sow, and there will be a day of judgment. For some, what a glorious day that will be. And for others, a day of woe. The difference is our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as we go through here, there's a couple of things that we need to see. First is this. You ever have an anxious child? You ever see a child that gets nervous, scared at night? Mommy, Daddy, will you all tuck me in? Would you just tuck me in bed tonight? I'm scared. Well, in the midst of all this negative woe language, there's a little nugget of truth. A beautiful verse that, just like a parent gives comfort to a child by tucking them in bed at night, should bring comfort to each and every one of us. It shines so beautifully in this text. And it's verse 14. In the midst of all this judgment, all this negative talk, the Lord says to Habakkuk these words. Look at it. It says in verse 14, For the earth will be filled 
with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, it just stands out beautifully. Here's point number two on your outline. God reveals his sovereignty, which means God is in control even when you don't think he's in control. There's a lot of panic in our country right now. I hear it all the time. Politics, COVID, broken relationships, fear, anxiety. It's as if God has left us or abandoned us. But what this verse teaches us is that God is in control. Notice the tense. It's future tense. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge. Now watch these words. Of the glory of the Lord. Let me tell you what's happened, folks. The Babylonians, the children of Israel, and America has forgotten this one little phrase. Listen to me. We have forgotten the glory of the Lord. We're so busy. We've got all this stuff to do. We don't give thought to this incredible God that made the heavens and the earth, who sustains all things, who gives us instruction in his holy word on how to live our lives. Our desires become first in our lives and we forget about the glory of the Lord. Just by way of review, I went back and I looked at this phrase, the glory of the Lord with the children of Israel. It's, it's an amazing concept that God was trying to get across to them. Remember, they, they kind of left God and did their own thing. So God had to send the Babylonians to discipline them. If you remember in Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, settled on the mountain. And what did the people do? They fell. They got on their knees. They're like, whoa. There is something different about the glory of the Lord. It's not like feelings. It's distinctly different. God's glory is holy. And the people were so amazed by God's glory, they fell. Moses in Exodus chapter 3, before the burning bush, you're standing on holy ground. Whoa. It's a different kind of woe. Instead of woe of the Babylonians, it's a woe of the Lord. I'm in the presence of holiness, perfect holiness, almighty God. In the tabernacle in Exodus 40, the meeting place where God was to meet his people, the Bible says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Where God is, there's glory. Where God's not, there's not. He's trying to say to his children the same thing he's saying to us. When will you focus on the glory of the Lord? Same thing in the temple. The tabernacle was the mobile temple when God established the permanent temple. In 2 Chronicles 7, verse 3, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the people said, he is good. His love endures forever. There's a response when you recognize the glory of the Lord. When you don't recognize the glory of the Lord, there will be no response. You know what you and I are in the New Testament? The Bible calls us the temple of the Holy Spirit. As the glory of the Lord is in us, guess what? We'll respond, he is good and his love endures forever. But if we ignore that which God has deposited in us, his spirit, his glory, we're just going to go through the motions. and Our faith will be dead and dried up. In fact, in 1 Samuel 4, if you remember that story, a woman, the wife of Phinehas... She had a baby. She died. They named the child Ichabod for the glory had left Israel. You see the same principle in Ezekiel 10. The glory of the Lord left. Now notice what I'm trying to tell you. Where God is, there's his glory. Where God's not, there's not his glory. When we choose sin, when we choose desires 
over the word of the Lord, God will say, help yourself. And he leaves. Now we must be careful here. It's hard to state a general principle like this because God is so gracious. God is so patient. God is always looking for the one who wants to repent. God is always looking for that heart that wants to turn to him. Because that's part of his glory. God in his wisdom is saying to Habakkuk, yeah, I see what the Babylonians are doing. But here's what's going to happen because he knows the future. And God is saying to us, yeah, I know where you are. I know where you're in your situation right now, but I also know your future. When are you going to focus on my glory? One of the coolest texts in the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, 9, when they're announcing the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. That's a good indicator that you're in the presence of God. You're terrified. Where's the fear of the Lord? Where's the, we're terrified of the Babylonians. They're nothing compared to the Lord. God is trying to cultivate the just shall live by faith because they seek and know the glory of the Lord. And when you do that, you'll glorify the Lord. Do you know how big God is? I think sometimes we forget how awesome and majestic God is. Let me give you an illustration. The other night, my, my family, we do nightly devotionals. We have for years. We get a little devotional. My wife's the preacher in our home. She reads and I call on the kids to pray. They get tired of me preaching too much. So mom's the preacher in our home. And, and she reads the devotional every night. Well, the other night she was reading from the one-year uh, guide of Christian history. One-year devotional of Christian history. And she read this story and I'm thinking, that is just amazing. Let me tell it to you. 1776. Does anybody remember what happened in 1776? Hey, we're here in America because of what happened in 1776. But God's not limited to America. Did you know that? There was, a, there was a guy named James Taylor on February the 1st, 1776. He was a farmer, and he was going to get married in England. He had to go do some chores in the morning. He had raised in church by his parents, but he had never given his heart to Jesus Christ he went to you know, go out and work in the, in the barn and suddenly, on his wedding day, he came under conviction of sin in the barn. He says, you know what? I'm getting married. I better get my life right. And he gets down on his knees and he starts to pray and sovereignly, majestically, no altar call, God saves him in a barn doing chores. Glory to God, amen? The problem was he started praying so long he was wait, late for his wedding. Now, he got there in time, and they got. But, but one principle is, you know, don't yell at your spouse ahead of time because God might be doing something in their heart and they're a little bit late. But, he, but he's getting this experience with the Lord. He gets saved in a barn, goes and gets married in 1776 in England. And we stop there and go, glory to God on the highest, praise God, amen, he's a good God. He lived a faithful life. Later he had an injury. Had to leave his vocation. I think he was a stonemason or something. Had to quit his job because something came into his life where he got injured. He became a Methodist preacher. And he had married a girl named Betty Johnson. They had a wonderful, good life. They were quiet folks. Not name evangelists. Just simple, hard-working, blue-collar folk. My kind of person. 
Doesn't need a lot of name for himself. Just every day wants to give glory to God. Well, they have kids. And they have kids and they try to live a righteous life. One day their great-grandchildren in 1832, 1776, 1832, had some kids. Named their child after their great-great-grandfather, James Taylor. So years had passed because of their faithfulness to the Lord. They feared God. They gave him glory. They had a grandchild. That grandchild was prayed for by his parents in a very specific and unique way. The parents said, Lord, if you give us a son, let him be a missionary to China. That's what the parents prayed. Make a long story short, that child grew up to be the great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor. Fifty years had passed. And God was raising up a great-great-grandchild from a guy who was late to his wedding. Because he met Jesus in a barn. At the age of 21, Hudson Taylor decided to go to China. When he went, there were 350 to the best of our knowledge, 350 baptized Christians in all of China. He felt called of God to go to the interior of China and be a missionary. He was resisted by, of all things, missionary societies. And he went in and faithfully served his Lord and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is said that China, right now, well, from the year 2000, in the year 2000, had 75 million believers in Jesus Christ. Did you get that? In tremendous persecution, 350 Christians when he went there, 75 million in 2000, because a guy met Jesus in a barn. And you think, God doesn't know what he's up to? Now, I read a report this week that China, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in China. They're facing incredible persecution right now. If you're caught with religious literature, you can be given three and a half years in jail. You can get uh, all of your books burned. I hope they never pass that here. But, but the, the, the church in China has grown so exponentially because they recognize the glory of God. Can you not see the glory of God? And hey, I'm going I'm to get this farmer in England <laughs> and I'm going to touch him on his wedding day. While at the same time, I'm going to start a new nation on the other side of the world. And, and I'm going to use that farmer to become a godly man. I'm going to have to give him an injury so that he'll become a Methodist preacher. But he will pass on righteousness from his family to his children, to his grandchildren, to his great-grandchildren. And God raised up a missionary that is responsible for, for millions of people becoming Christians in China. How can we look at that and listen to that and say, God doesn't know what he's doing. He just doesn't ask us for our opinion or want our consultation when he's doing what he's doing. What God is telling to Habakkuk is this. Glorify me. Recognize who I am. It's not all about you. I love this verse of scripture. It's in your outline. 1 Peter 1. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Here's Habakkuk complaining. Lord, I understand this. I understand this. This doesn't make any sense. 
And God's saying, Habakkuk, you're looking at one piece of a very large puzzle. A puzzle that has so many pieces, you can't even fathom the number. You're complaining about one piece in a puzzle. Instead of looking at your circumstances, look to me. And just be amazed by the glory and majesty of God. Now, by way of personal application, some of us came in here today, we've had problems for a while. Perhaps you've complained about them. I want you to know that your God is big enough. He understands what you're going through and he knows the answer to what you're going through. Your job is not to figure it out. Your job is to give him praise and give him glory until he reveals his answer. It may be on this side of heaven. It may be on the other side of heaven. But he knows what he's doing. Well, how does Habakkuk respond? See, when you understand the glory of God, something happens with your complaining. Lewis says on verse 3, God requires our silence. Point number three, God requires our silence. Look what it says in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That word silent there, I mean, is a command. It's hush, shh, be quiet. Habakkuk, stop your complaining and start focusing on my glory. In a prison cell in Philippians, the apostle Paul says to us Christians, do everything without arguing or complaining. Man, I, I don't know about you, but I have failed that command many times. Here's the spiritual thing that God is telling Habakkuk, and it's the same spiritual thing he's telling us. Watch. Shh. You have no idea what I'm up to. No, that's not Jeff telling you to shh, okay? That's the Lord saying, shh. I know. I know what you're going through. He's just listed all these details about Babylonians. He knows. He's not saying figure it out. He's saying your situation will change when you learn about my glory and you begin to give me glory. That's where your emphasis needs to be because I'm bigger than you and my thoughts are bigger than you and I know what I'm up to. And the only response we can have is to just... Do you remember Job? I mean, he lost his family. He lost his possessions. He lost everything. And he went to God. You know, all his friends were trying to counsel him, get him figured out. And it says in chapter 40, when Job spoke to the Lord, here's what Job said. I am unworthy, O God. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I put my hand. He had been through so much more than we have. And he said, I have learned this lesson. I'm putting my hand over my mouth. Because you are so glorious. Your ways are so unfathomable. I can't say a word. I'm just stunned. So I'm just going to hush now. You ever get around somebody just they always give you advice all the time? Sometimes the best thing is just, shh. I'm just going to hush now. And when we get in God's presence, I don't think God wants our advice. He says what he has said. Now we just need to respond to us. I'm just going to hush now and give you glory. I'll close with this story. Many years ago, the great, brilliant theologian, late theologian John Stott, wrote a little saying called the long silence. It's just a couple of paragraphs. I hope you'll let me read it to you. It's talking about all the complainers in the world, of which we could all (laughs) say we have had a part. 
The story is told of billions of people scattered on a great plain before Almighty God's throne. Some of the groups near the front talk heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us, said one. What does God know about suffering, snapped a brunette. She jerked back a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. We have suffocated in slave ships, been wretched from loved ones, toiled till death gave release. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky God is, they said, to live in heaven where there's no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. Indeed, what does God know about mankind? Both men and women had to endure in this world. After all, God lives a pretty sheltered life, doesn't he? So each group sent out a leader, chosen because he or she had suffered the most. There was a Jewish person, a black person, an untouchable from India, an illegitimate person, a victim of Hiroshima, and one from a Siberian slave camp. To the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather simple. Before God was qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. But because he was God, they set certain safeguards to be sure that he could not use his divine power to help himself. They said, let him be born a Jewish person. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted so that no one would know who was really his father. Let him champion a cause so just but so radical that it brings down upon him the hate, condemnation, and efforts of every major traditional and established religious authority to eliminate him. Let him try to describe what no man or woman has ever seen, tasted, heard, or betrayed or seen. Let him be betrayed by his dearest friends. Let him be indicted on a false charge, tried before a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him see what it's like to be terribly alone and completely abandoned by every living thing. Let him be tortured and let him die. Let him die the most humiliating death among thieves. After they announced their portion and their sentence, loud murmurs of approvals went up from the great throngs of people. But at last, when they pronounced their sentence, suddenly, everybody got silent. They said, shh. No one uttered another word. No one moved for suddenly. They all knew God had already served his sentence. In Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is where we see the glory of God. We have nothing to complain about. Nothing. So where are you? In the camp of complaint or the camp of glory? Here's the question. What do you do with Jesus Christ? I can't figure out your problem, but I know the one who can in his time, in his way. My job and your job is to give him glory. And until then, we just need to be silent. And aren't you glad that we have a God like that?
See the beautiful thing about what Jesus has done for us. So in that day of judgment, which we all will appear, God say, tell me, what have you got to say for your life? I'm leaning on Jesus. I am totally dependent on Jesus. And while I lived, I wanted to give him glory. I wanted to give him honor. And I wanted to give him praise. I depend on Jesus. Well done, thou good, faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. It's all about him. Friend, he knows. He knows the pain. He knows the suffering. He knows the future. He's waiting for you to recognize that he does. For the, dread, the just shall truly live by faith. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's all about him. Give your heart to him. If you're walking through a difficult situation, give him glory. Let him know that you need his help, but give him glory. He's good. His love endures forever.